you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. Markets seem reasonably priced until there's not enough money to keep buying the stocks that lead us higher. And that is the brutal lesson we're learning. In the wake of the shocking Snowflake IPO yesterday, where buyers seemed indifferent to the share price. If you wanted to buy Snowflake, you had to sell something else, which triggered a sell-off in the NASDAQ. And that decline spread today, with the Dow dipping 130 points, the S&P falling 0.84%, and the Nasdaq losing 1.27%, as a lot of people call into question what they're doing paying such high prices. At Snowflake's peak yesterday, we saw the absurd spectacle of a stock trading at more than 100 times, not earnings, but sales. Yep, sales. Because there are no earnings, just losses as far as the eye can see. Don't get me wrong. Snowflake, it should not be about making money right here. It should be losing money. It's a hyper-growth enterprise where it makes sense for management to spend fortunes in order to dominate the cloud data management business. You want to win, you got to spend. Snowflake's not really the issue, though. CEO Frank Slootman will do everything in his power to deliver for shareholders. You heard that in the interview yesterday. He's got an amazing track record. I totally understand why people are willing to pay through the nose for a stock. I told you I liked it even as high as 125. But I clearly underestimated the demand because it swiftly went to 250 before pulling back hard today. All day today, I heard that the underwriters were the problem. They priced the deal too low. Wrong. The initial price range was 75 to 85. They priced it at 120. That's a huge move up. And I know exactly how they got there because I used the same reasoning. I think they looked at the gigantic demand. They decided to value it like the single most expensive stock in the market, which is Zoom Video, and figured Snowflake deserved a similar valuation based on prevailing investor sentiment and 100% revenue growth plus, no matter how insane that might be. Still, that $120 price tag, it's a stretch. As Zoom's growing a bit faster than Snowflake, and it's also outrageously profitable. It would have been crazy for the underwriters to price this thing uh, higher than Zoom. They went as high as they could possibly go. Should they have flooded the market with more supply to hold the price down in the aftermarket? I, I don't know. I mean, they sold 28 million shares. That's not chump change. Believe me, as someone who's been on both sides of the IPO process, the underwriters did nothing wrong here. 
The problem, the problem was with the buyers. They lost their minds. Some of this is because when a hedge fund gets a piece of the deal, they rarely get enough. If you want a position that's big enough to move the needle, you have to buy more in the aftermarket. And you're not as sensitive to price because of those cheaper IPO shares. If you got 50,000 shares at 120 and then bought another 50,000 at a very high price, call it 180. Well, then you've got a $150 cost basis, which is expensive, but, but not totally insane. But there was too much demand for that playbook to work. Snowflake had the blessing of both Salesforce.com and Berkshire Hathaway, both of which got $250 million worth of stock at the offering price. Mark Benioff, the CEO of Salesforce, practically invented the cloud. He's got a fabulous track record picking winners. He got a piece of the Zoom IPO, too, by the way. Far more amazing was Berkshire Hathaway's involvement. Historically, Warren Buffett has never been a big fan of IPOs. He hasn't gone in one in more than 50 years until Snowflake. When even Berkshire Hathaway wants a piece of something like Snowflake, you know it's going to be huge, which is why institutions were desperate to get a piece of it. So desperate that they sold all the other cloud stocks and fang names in order to raise the cash they needed. All the high-flying momentum stocks got absolutely wrecked yesterday and today, which led to the vicious selling in the broader Nasdaq and then only to the larger averages, although you see that they rallied back because that's where the cheap stocks are. Now, maybe you're wondering why this bothers me so much. After all, it's just one IPO, right? Wrong. Snowflake's merely the first in a parade of IPOs. Now, I've been warning you that this market's about to be flooded with deals, and none of them will be as good as this first one. We've been through this cycle many times before. See, I can tell you what comes next. We get a flash flood of expensive IPOs, but lower quality than Snowflake. In order to participate in them, money managers will need to sell something to raise cash. They don't have that cash sitting around. So what they'll do, well, they'll sell the similar super high flyers. Then they'll move into other tech stocks with more reasonable valuations and start selling those. Facebook, Apple, Alphabet. These are fantastic companies, but their stocks have run up dramatically. So hedge funds will sell them to pay for the next stuff, like even though the companies are doing great and the stocks are really good. Sometimes it feels like I'm the only one worried about this IPO deluge. But today I saw a terrific piece of research titled The Implications of IPO Agogo. And I think they nailed it. I mean, this piece talked about how we're looking at a record number of deals, most of which will be underpriced for going to gigantic premiums. And when that happens, it will overwhelm the rest of the market, especially the digital stocks. Couldn't have said it better myself. Made me feel like I'm not alone. Then I looked at the date the piece was written. It was November 30th, 1999. 21 years ago, and it was by my friend Steve Galbraith, a genius, and he was at that point the equity strategist at Bernstein, the research firm. The massive NASDAQ top was building, and Galbraith spotted He was screaming for you to look out. He followed that one up with two more pieces. There was, quote, jailbreak, the coming flood of expiring IPO lockups on March 14th of 2000, right before the peak. And then jailbreak redux, no parole for prior good behavior on April 3rd, right after saying that even the good ones are going to be sacrificed. Now, I was running money back then, and Galbraith's research was instrumental in getting me out of the market. We talked every day right before the top. I got the timestamp. Then convincing me to go short in April of 2000 because he was so worried about the jailbreak. Oh, we had a great year. That said, I don't think we're looking at a repeat of the dot-com era or what happened back then. These companies that are trading now are much higher quality, with legitimate great growth paths. But just like back then, we have an IPO problem. Like now, there were too many underwritings followed by tons of secondary offerings where insiders sold stock at any price because they were desperate to cash out. Of course, there are some big differences. This time around, the companies coming public are excellent. It's just that their stocks are too expensive. 
This time, there's less excess capital floating around the stock market, which might cut the IPO cycle short a little earlier than you expect. Finally, this time, the Fed is your friend, which makes it easier to own stocks. And that matters. That's the so-called no other alternative position. And who knows if we get a stimulus package. But the action today was very reminiscent of the past great and then boom and then bust IPO cycles. There was a movement internally under the averages to cheap cyclical stocks like Dow Chemical, which raised earnings estimates, or Caterpillar, which may be on the cusp of a turnaround, or 3M, where the fundamentals are clearly improving. They all did well despite the decline in the averages, and they're all much less expensive than what stocks we're talking about. Look, I, I am certainly not trying to scare you. I expected a correction, and that's exactly what we're getting here. That's why we've been raising cash for my travel trust. I've spent weeks telling you to do that. I think it's time to start putting cash to work instead of tech, though. I recommend picking up some of these historically cheap stocks that are being brought down by the entire averages, S&P selling, whatever it takes to get money in to own Snowflake. The bottom line, we aren't going to see a repeat of the dot-com crash, but when I see all these red-hot IPOs like Snowflake or JFrog or AMWell, I, look, I get concerned. Doesn't mean you should give up on the whole market. There are plenty of areas that still work. But as long as these deals keep coming, the high-flying tech stocks will indeed lose the luster they have gained in the last few years through no fault of their own. Steve in Maryland. Steve. Hi, Jim. Booyah. Booyah, Steve. What's up? Hey, I wanted your opinion of uh, Toll Brothers' chances of upward growth over the next 12 months. Stock symbol T-O-L. I happen to like Toll very much, Steve. They've done a lot uh, to be able to. It's only a $5 billion company. They've really done a lot to, to uh, make their organization uh, lean, mean, fabulous homes, a lot of move-ups, really terrific as part of this stay-at-home stay economy. And it's at 12 times earnings. I think you've got a winner. Mike in California. Mike. Hi, Jim. Big fan. Love the show. Thank you. I want to know about your opinion about a great e-commerce company, their executives, and the upside you see in the next three years. And, of course, if you think it's a buy, that company is GoDaddy. GoDaddy's a good company. It's frequently overlooked. It's only a $12 billion company doing a lot of good things. Uh, you're totally involved with the with, with web design. I mean, it's well, look, I happen to like Wix more. That's the one I think of when I think about web design. But I'd love to have GoDaddy on to talk about the stock. Let's go to Mike in New Jersey. Mike. Hi, Jim. Uh, Mike from the Jersey Shore. Long, hey. Long time, long time listener. Appreciate what you do for the individual investor. Thank you. My question is on a company I have invested into multiple times. It's a cloud-based business provider. Cloudera. I uh, just recently released better than expected earnings, which was during the, uh, the last pullback. And they also statements that were made a few months back by the company that they had received interest uh, from, a, from a prospective buyer. Right. But you see, you know, we can't you know, we, we can't buy stocks on the basis of, uh, of what could be a takeover rumor. I will say this. It's an inexpensive stock, but that's, this is in a business where they want fast-growing stocks, even if they're expensive, and that's the problem. Cloudera does not have the growth that other people are looking for, but they did beat the quarter, and I don't think it's dangerous. I historically have liked it down here. Let's go to Frank in Arizona. Frank. Booyah, Mr. Kramer. Booyah. Also a big booyah to my Arizona Cardinals with a big road win in that toughest division in the NFL. But well, that I'm could asking be about now win. Thank you, sir. Win Casinos. I'm looking at the tourism ban in China. 
being resumed on the September 23rd with no restrictions, so no two-week quarantine where 90% of their business comes from. China's Golden Week is October 1st through the 8th, where 75% of the hotels are already booked with 75% capacity. 25% of those are booked full. Right. So all signs to me look like it's time to go win, win, win. Well, look, I think Batmatics is terrific. Uh, the stock is down uh, more than 40%. Uh, I'm thinking much more, frankly, about Penn National because of some thinking that I've done about sportsbook and regional gambling rather than Chinese gambling. But I have no problem buying Windet here because Mr. Maddox has done a very good job uh, trying to fight the COVID problems, probably more sophisticated than almost anybody I deal with. Okay, these red hot IPOs, they're getting me a little concerned, but there's still plenty of areas that work. You know, there's always a bull market somewhere. Oh, we have money tonight. Could a telehealth company backed by Google be just what the doctor ordered for this market? I'm focusing on a company called Amwell Health after its first day of trading. Proof point, it's down about 20% for the year, but does it have a point to prove in this market? I'm going to be talking to the CEO. But first, does remote work have staying power? I'm going to give you some thoughts. Stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. As we watch the markets crumble from the absurdity of that ridiculous snowflake pricing debacle, too much money chasing an already expensive stock, we may be missing a much more important story. And I'm talking about the staying power of the stay-at-home thesis. I know we spent months talking about the stay-at-home economy, but that doesn't mean we're giving it enough credit because I find it keeps popping up all over the place still, and we've been home for a while. In the span of 24 hours, I had four experiences that suggest working from home may actually be the new normal. First, last night, we spoke to Aaron Levy. He's the hardworking CEO of Box, which is the cloud-based data storage company that had a very good quarter. What spurred their sales? People working from home who needed a secure way to share data with their colleagues. It was a strong tailwind, and he said it isn't over. Second, we also had Mark Klaus, the CEO of Campbell Soup. 
And this was an incredibly important interview. You had to parse it. See, Klaus said something on the conference call when he reported earnings that confused a lot of people. He seemed to be saying that things could return to normal after the big period of pandemic-induced stockpiling ended. Now, of course, that would be bad for Campbell's, but it turned out he missed the mark on what he was saying. But what he meant was that Campbell's Soup has so much demand, chiefly from the stay-at-home set, they've been having supply chain issues. By back to normal, he meant the supply chain issues would be resolved and all the goods that people want would be in the store. In other words, a very good quarter could have been spectacular if we just had more product. Think about what the stay-at-home economy means for snacking. When you're in the office, you have to go somewhere in your building, maybe a cafeteria, or go to a different building to get good snacks. Now, though, if you want to pop some goldfish or Hanover pretzels or Cape Cod potato chips, all fantastic Campbell's brands, you can just pop over to the next room. I think the cash flow here is immense, and the new demand is more sustainable than people realize. I know Campbell's is sleepy, and it's no snowflake, it's no Zoom. But the stock is undervalued and could have a growing dividend. I'm betting it's too cheap, given the strength of the stay-at-home thesis, and yes, the improvement of what had been a very tattered balance sheet. Third, in last Friday's game plan, I told you to watch the stock of Herman Miller. That's the maker of fancy office furniture, among other kinds, especially those fancy Aeron chairs. Their last quarter was terrible because no offices were buying new furniture, right? But I, I, I thought they'd be able to make a huge comeback now that people are investing in their home offices. If you got to sit in a chair all day, it might as well be a nice ergonomic chair with lumbar support. Sure enough, when Herman Miller reported this morning, they delivered some monster numbers, courtesy of the stay-at-home economy. Listen to this from the call. Our, this is actually from the press release. Our retail business led the way this quarter with, an order, with orders up an impressive 40% year over year. Demand was led by Home Depot. By, um, demand was led by home office category, which increased nearly 300% over last year. Consumers are also investing in their broader home environments, which led to a positive year-on-year demand across multiple product categories, notably upholstery, outdoor, and accessories. End quote. Holy cow. Is there any wonder why this stock surged 33% today? Now, none of this should really be too earth-shaking, given that we spoke to Stuart Miller, the CEO of Lenar, earlier this week, and he told us the housing market's booming, with the home office being a big driver. He explained that the pandemic's causing a housing boom as people move to the suburbs to escape from urban COVID hotspots. Which brings me to why I think these moves all have staying power. Companies have figured out that it might be both cheaper and safer to keep their workers at home. Sales have held up. So why bother bringing people back? Office space is expensive. Why shell out all that money if you don't need to? And most important, without a vaccine, people are still getting sick at the office. They've been reading those stories. Better to be well, even if it means working from home, where it seems to be almost every bit as productive as going to the office. Rod in Florida, Rod. Yes, what's up? What's up, Rob? What's going on? I'm doing really good. How about you? Excellent day. Probably one of the finest other than yesterday. What's going on? I just wanted to uh, get your take on uh, Chevron. What do you think? Well, if you have to own an oil stock, there's only two oil stocks that I like. Chevron for the dividend, because I believe they have no problem covering it. It's six and a half. And then I like Parsley, P.E., for the growth. But that's it. And I'm not a big fan of the oils. I I have uh, said that I don't think they're investable. Anyway, companies have figured out how to make remote work to their advantage. Uh, All these stay-at-home moves have staying power with companies like these, which I think are doing very, very well. Stick with Craig. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. 
With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact, smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere, you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast, indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. You know, I'm worried here because this week we've been bombarded by high quality IPOs, but there's still a bombardment. Lots of terrific companies with stocks that were priced to spike right out of the gate. Regular viewers know that this does make me concerned. Because as we get flooded with these deals, that puts downward pressure on the high-flying tech stocks that have let us higher for months. With is the Nasdaq getting hammered yesterday afternoon and again today? But even as I'm concerned about all these initial public offerings, I want to be aware of the best ones because sooner or later we'll get a market-wide pullback and they'll be worth buying on weakness. That's how some of the best investments ever happen, which brings me to today's IPO. It brings me to Amwell. Here's a company that's in the telehealth business, which you know we love, digital healthcare, and it's got a red-hot stock. Amwell makes it possible for you to see your doctor over the web rather than by going to their office in the middle of the pandemic, where every waiting room could be a COVID incubator. We know this is a terrific business because it's very similar to the amazing Teladoc. But Teladoc stopped being a pure play when it decided to merge with another one of our favorites, Livongo, the digital health coach for people with diabetes, but also hypertension. Although I've got to tell you, that combination I like very, very much. Still, Amwell now occupies a coveted niche. It's the sole publicly traded pure play on telehealth during the world's worst pandemic in the last hundred years. Unfortunately, it's also got a ridiculously expensive stock, which makes me hesitate to recommend, even though I like the company so much. Remember, there's always a difference between the company and the stock price. 
you know that from watching Mad Money, then you know that we've got this problem with Amwell. See, as a couple of months ago, they powered their, the digital care program of 55 different health plans covering 36,000 employers and, I mean, and more than 80 million potential patients, along with 150 of the largest health systems in America. That encompasses over 2,000 hospitals. They got a very smart approach to this business. See, Amwell primarily goes after the enterprise side of the business. They make their platform easy to integrate into existing healthcare software for companies, for insurance companies, and for doctor's offices. It's simple, easy, best. I know that's because, you know, I've been a fan of this industry for a long time. But COVID-19, well, it's been a total game changer for the whole group. But I liked it before COVID-19. In January and February, they were seeing 5,500 digital doctor's visits per day. Not bad. But in April, it surged to 40,000. And even with that massive increase, average wait times were still under 10 minutes. Just like with yesterday's hottest IPO, Snowflake. Amwell is a high-profile backer with incredibly deep pockets. For Snowflake, it was Salesforce and Berkshire Hathaway. For Amwell, it's none other than Google which shelled out a $100 million for a 3% stake in the business in late August. They've got a very big healthcare division. As part of that deal, Amwell's using Google Cloud for their web infrastructure. So it's less of a clear-cut endorsement, though still worth noting. And I have liked the changes that I've seen in Google Cloud. More importantly, this has become a phenomenal growth story in the age of COVID. Last year, Amwell had 30.6% revenue growth, which is very good in absolute terms, but nothing to write home about if you're comparing it to the hottest stocks in the market. Since the pandemic, though, their business has caught fire. In the first six months of 2020, Amwell had 77% revenue growth. That's a massive acceleration. Wall Street loves ARG. That's accelerating revenue growth. And that undersells what's going on here because the first quarter was mostly normal. For the, second, uh, for the first quarter to the second quarter, Amwell's monthly visit volumes more than quadrupled. Of course, the pandemic is temporary. We hope. But I think we're headed to a world of telemedicine anyway. I think this just accelerated it. The virus moved up the timeline. The thing is, what matters here are the emergency rules adopted by insurance companies, along with Medicare and Medicaid. Thanks to COVID-19, doctors now get reimbursed at higher rates for digital health care. If reimbursement rates go back down when this is all over, the whole industry will be a lot less enthusiastic about telemedicine, which would be a major problem for Amwell. For now, though, they're raking in the revenue. Earnings are another story, though. Amwell's not yet profitable, and they've had to spend a lot of money this year building out this capacity to meet the demand. As their volumes have skyrocketed, their margins, unfortunately, have plummeted. The gross margin, what they make from each dollar of revenue after the cost of goods sold, dropped from 48% in the first half of 2019 to 37% in the first half of this year. And their operating margin, it's hideous. Hideous. They've gone from losing less than 50 cents per each dollar of revenue to losing 93 cents per each dollar of revenue. A lot of that's because of a big increase in stock-based compensation, which doesn't worry me so much. Their adjusted EBITDA margin, which excludes stock-based compensation and COVID costs, is actually moving in the right direction. Put it all together, and Amwell's a company that was clearly in the right place at the right time. But it's not just luck. Because they've done a great job responding to the pandemic, and I like management very much. Once they're integrated into all these health systems, they'll have tons of opportunities to upsell their clients some more telehealth solutions. But they're still losing a lot of money. There's the regulatory issue. If digital reimbursement rates come down after we get COVID under control, that's a major problem. Even the CEO doesn't seem to think the current environment will last. When the company raised its last private funding round in spring, he said, quote, it's possible the window for any type of funding might not be available quite soon, end quote. Presumably that's the reason why they're coming public right now. 
And you got to give the guy credit for being honest, though. The other big negative is competition. There's no real moat protecting Amwell's business and lots of other companies uh, who want a piece of this rapidly growing industry. Well, I don't know. I mean, there's not, there's not much stopping a, a Zoom or Twilio from coming in and taking share, although that doesn't seem to be their orientation. All told, there's a price I'd be willing to pay for Amwell, but it's nowhere near the IPO. <laughs> what happened? It, it's just nowhere near it. The IPO price of 18, which I liked, there was a $4.15 billion company. But when it finally opened at 1 p.m., it was trading north of 25. At those levels, it was more like a $6 billion company. Different animal. If we assume the company ends up growing at a 70% clip this year, then right now, Amwell's trading at roughly 21 times this year's sales. Remember, there's like 25 of those companies, and I think they're too expensive. It's a similar valuation to high flyers like Twilio, DocuSign, Fiverr and a lot more expensive than Teladoc, the closest comparison, which trades at 16 times sales. The way I see it, at 21 times sales, Amwell's trading like you can keep putting up COVID-19-style number of revenues forever. But maybe that <laughs> could be true. But if so, it's already baked in at these levels, so it's too rich for me. The bottom line, I like Amwell, the company. But if you buy the stock right here, you're betting that the pandemic's going to stick around for a lot longer than many think. Or that digital reimbursement rates won't be lowered again when the virus goes away. My view, if you want to own this one, you have to let it come in because it's too hot right now. I would be more bullish if you got to pull back to the mid to high teens, pretty much where it came, where it was, where it was offered. But for the moment, though, you know what you got to do? You got to keep your bat on your shoulder until we get better prices. Let's go to Onur in New Jersey. Onur. Big booyah from the Green Garden State, Jim. Oh, how are, how you? are you? What's going on? I'm doing great. Uh, my question today, Jim, is about a company that you recommended some time ago. I never really invested in the telemedicine field, uh, field until I heard from you. Uh, the big merger coming up soon also with Teladoc Health. You know, my question is about Livongo Health. Oh, uh, I love this merger. Ago. Now, we did have them on. We did it on, on your when the merger occurred, and actually they kind of broke the news on, on, on our show, on one of my shows. And I think it's just terrific. Uh, I know that there's a lot of it's kind of, it's trading kind of squishy, but at 13 billion for Livongo, I mean, I, I want you, you should own it. It's really a good situation. Uh, both companies, Teladoc and Livongo, are excellent. Let's go to Robert in Maryland. Robert. Hey, Jim, this is Robert from Bel Air, Maryland, and I was just wondering what you thought about uh, Resmid, RMD. Uh, and I'm a long-time listener of you. Well, I think the CPAP business is good. Now, the, the uh, I have to tell you, uh, the stock has been acting somewhat uh, curious, and and, uh, and some people cut their price targets. Some people raise them. Uh, look, I have to tell you, I, I, got, I, I have been a big believer in this company literally since it came public, and there's no reason for me to back away from ResMed. I like it, and I think you're fine. Okay, if you believe the pandemic's going to stick around and want to own Amwell, I just am saying please let it come down a little because it's just a little too hot now. Much more mad money ahead. Hackers are eyeing students returning to virtual classes, but how is proof point working to keep you safe? I'm going to be talking to the CEO. Then a glimmer of green in today's sell-off. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. Until the last few weeks, the cybersecurity stocks seemed unstoppable. With the rise of the stay-at-home economy, businesses had to spend fortunes keeping out hackers because it's much harder to protect your network when everyone's working remotely. Yet there's one cybersecurity stock that has consistently lagged the group. I mean, consistently. And its name is Poop Point. 
Here's a company that used to be focused on protecting email, though in recent years they've made a bunch of cloud acquisitions and involving what they describe as a people-centric approach to security. It's not just email now. They're also monitoring apps and login systems. The weird thing is that we know Poopoint's doing very well. When the company reported in late July, they knocked it out of the park, yet the stock got hammered the next day. Since then, it just keeps tumbling. It was at 125 before the quarter. It's now at 103. i got to figure out what's going on. Apparently, Poopoint is saying it's inexpensive. Why? Because late last month, they announced a $300 million buyback. That's equivalent to about 5% of the share count. Management also reiterated their full-year forecast, which is bizarrely higher than what analysts were predicting. Now, maybe this is the rare bargain into the cybersecurity space, but don't take it from me, please. Let's check in with Gary Steele, the CEO of Proofpoint, get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Steele, welcome back to Mad Money. Hey, thanks a lot, Jim. Appreciate it. All right, so Gary, it's a bit of a riddle for me. You've got a buyback, uh, you beat the estimates, but at the same time, there are analysts who are saying it's just better than feared. That's all it is. And they're still awaiting, as according to Morgan Stanley, he's got a decent analyst on this one, just awaiting the growth inflection. Now, I, I don't know. I think you're going pretty well, but it, it is a conundrum why your stock's down to the point where you needed to buy back stock. Well, we've executed really well through this whole period of COVID. I'm really proud of the team and the results we put up. And if you look at our Q2 results, we were we were pleased with those, those results. And as you indicated, um, the board did authorize a $300 million buyback of shares. We think about this very strategically. We looked at the balance sheet. We looked at the use of cash, and we felt like, um, the right way to return value to shareholders was to do that $300 million buyback. So we feel like we're really executing well, and we play in a very important role in this work-from-home economy. So we think we've got a really good setup, and we have um, a long-term view and then the great opportunity that we have in front of us. Well, the uh, stay-at-home economy seems to produce, I guess to use your term, a huge number of imposters. I find that I have people, I have emails now that I think are from legitimate, they're they're more sophisticated than ever. What is it about it that has stepped up the bad guy's game? Well, I think unfortunately it's working. So what's really happening on a day-to-day basis is companies are getting these imposter emails. And what what does that mean? Well, it looks like an email from the CEO or it looks like an email from a CFO and it's, it's, targeted at an individual to redirect a wire or redirect a paycheck. And these are just threat actors doing what they do well, which is trying to steal money from companies. And we're playing a really critical role today in trying to help companies prevent these kinds of attacks. Now, one of the things that you have taught us is that people are the problem here. Data doesn't just walk away by itself. How can you help people not hurting their own organization? Yeah, one of the big investments for us has been in this people-centric framework is to help organizations uh, protect the data that people create. And so we're giving companies more visibility, more controls that ensure that, you know, when you're sitting in front of your couch working from home, that you're not treating data in a way that's going to ultimately hurt the company. And for those individuals that are doing something malicious, we're going to help companies find those malicious individuals. But when we think about it, let's say you do get an email and it's from the CEO. The one thing you're not going to stop and do, Gary, is figure out whether it's bogus because that CEO wants an answer. So I don't know how you can really teach them because I think that you'd be worried about your job if you didn't respond quickly. No, and that's the tricky thing. That's why we need to block those. And so that individual doesn't actually receive that message that is an impersonation. And so that's, that's how we're applying new um, innovations in the AIML space to be able to identify those very sophisticated attacks and block them so that poor user's not trying to figure out, oh, my God, is that my CEO asked me to do something I shouldn't do. 
Do you think it's a good thing that people are uh, working at home or do you think it's going to change and we should go back on premises? That's the roaring and raging debate right now. You know, I think um, there's huge benefits in collaboration, but I do believe fundamentally that this work from home economy that we're living in is going to change the face of work and that you're going to see a blend and that security leaders and organizations are going to need to figure out how do you defend people when they are sitting sitting at home working from their couch, um, doing their job and doing it well. Well, you're making it sound like that they haven't decided yet, that there's some companies that perhaps aren't spending on proof point because they think it's all going to change. The vaccine's going to come and everyone's coming back. I don't hear you saying that. Well, I, I just think we're going to we're just going to see a different world when we when we get back to whatever that new normal is. And the one thing that's super clear to us as a company and it's what's been driving our growth, which we're quite proud of, is um, threat actors are targeting people and those people are sitting at home. They're going to be sitting in the office and the, the security landscape is going to require a different way of thinking. And we feel like we're just really well positioned to take advantage of this broader change that we do believe is happening now and will continue to happen. Do you think these institutions understand that email is the real weak point in their whole organization? You know, it's, it's interesting. Um, I think the fact is that email today is running the business process of most large companies. It's the way, the standard way in which business processes are happening. And as a result of that, threat actors are smart. You know, they're, they're going to insert themselves in the middle of that and try to, try to divert a wire to try to get a payroll check re-diverted. That's what they do. And so while there's been a huge um, use of new collaboration tools like Skype and Teams and things like that, email still running those companies. And we're working also with companies to ensure that if there's threats coming in through those new collaboration systems, that we can detect and block those as well. Well, I hope you can. I, a lot of us know that the when we see these emails these days, boy, they look like the real deal. Gary Steele, CEO of Proofpoint, thank you so much for coming on Mad Money. Thanks so much, Jim. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Okay. Inexpensive stock, buying back stock right here. And the main thing is, look, it's just getting worse. It ain't getting better. Mad Money's back in. It is time. It's up the night round. What's up, Rev? Friends out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski Daddy over the lightning round. Okay, let's start with Justine in Florida. Justine. Hi, good evening, Kramer. How good are evening. you? Um, I wanted to ask you about Next Era Energy. Oh, it's, my, it's the fastest growing, best uh, utility. I, if you want a growth utility, that's the one. If you want a little more safety, you do Con Ed. And if you want just kind of a plain old but good grower, American Electric Power. Let's go to Greg in New York. Greg. Booyah, Jim. How are you? I am doing well. How about you? I'm all right. Thank you. Thank you. Got a question in regards of Apple and Peloton. Do you think we're in a good situation here with Peloton, or do you think there's a buyout opportunity? I, I like Peloton, but I think it's run up way too far. I do believe that there's a stay-at-home uh, exercise community that does matter, and it is growing, and it is an ecosystem. But the stock has had a very big run. I think it can go higher, but I don't like the risk reward here. How about Jen in Florida? Jen. Booyah, JC. JK Boo- from Florida. <laughs> Booyah, Shout how are you? you? I'm good. Shout out to all uh, social workers. What is your wisdom on FLGT, uh, Fulgent? Uh, it's a diagnostic. You know, look, anything that's about diagnostics is incredibly hot. But remember, I'm a, 
I'm an old-fashioned diagnostic guy. I like Abbott. I like Thermo Fisher. But you know what? One little spec, that one works for me. Let's go to Matt Mishkin. Matt. Booyah, Jimmy Chill. How you doing? Booyah. Uh, my question is your thoughts on my stock, Erickson, ticker symbol E-R-I-C. No, 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 no. You know, look, the king of that is Samsung. You can't invest in that. The stock that people are using as an analog to Samsung, by the way, is Marvell Tech. My Chapel Trust owns it, but that stock has been a rocket ship. Let's go to Greg in Wyoming. Greg. Booyah, Mr. Chill. Booyah. Uh, first time, long time club member. I've oh, got a crush on one you. of my holdings. Thank you. Hope you liked the club call yesterday. What's up? Hey, I've got a crush on one of my holdings. I need you to either uh, give me your blessings or break my heart. Cannon Armstrong, H-A-S-I. You know, here's the pro- no, First of all, it's up nicely, but they provide debt and equity financing, okay? Uh, and look, I like energy efficiency. we got Battery Day coming up September 22nd for, uh, for Tesla. But I really don't know who they lend to. And I've got to tell you, I do not like any credit market right now. Look at what's happening with our banks, and that's a bit of a bank, so I say no thank you. Madeline in Ohio. Madeline. Hello, Kramer. Hi, Madeline. How are you? I listen to you on Squawk, and I listen to you on Mad Money. Thank you. So sometimes I feel like uh, Woody Allen when he said, I invest money until there's nothing left. (laughs) And that's how I'm feeling about Splunk. Well, Splunk's pretty good. I mean, I, I, I look. I think that Splunk has good uh, security. It's, it's one of those companies people don't talk about as much as they should. But it's one of those companies that has a lot of things going for it in terms of uh, data analytics. It's funny because if you take a look at the company that went completely nuts, right? Uh, if you look, if you look at, at Snowflake, you have to wonder if there aren't. Uh, let's say some similarities with Splunk, and Splunk is a lot less expensive. So don't feel bad. You're in a good one. Let's go to Bill in Washington. Bill. Bill. Yes. You're up. Thank you. I'm ready. Go ahead. What stock? <laughs> You're on with Jim. You. I'm so You're on with Jim. What stock? I'm so flattered. Oh, go ahead. Just give me uh, thank you. I just what's what stock is it? What Sir? Oh, uh, um, Clorox. Oh, Clorox, okay. Look, I mean, Clorox is, first of all, Ben O'Dor is retiring, and I like him very much. I want to meet Linda Rendell. I I met her in person when I was out in San Francisco. But right now, the market doesn't like the defensive stocks, and they've stepped away from a stock like Clorox. we got to give it some time, let it come in a little. I can't pound the table right here, and I'm going to Oregon now. Christopher in Oregon. Christopher. Booyah, Kramer. Booyah. Uh, what are your thoughts on Vail Mining with the unusual activity? The business is coming back. The mining business is coming back. It's one of the reasons that Caterpillar is up so great. People are talking about iron ore being great. People are talking about copper. A lot of this is because China, like them or not, is enjoying a boom. That said, I still can't get behind Valet. I've got other companies I would rather own, which include Freeport, which I think has got, while not a great stock, is better than Valet. One more. Let's go to SAC in Georgia. SAC! Hi, hi, Jim. I wanted to know about uh, the trade desk. I have a significant amount of position in that stock. So, how? What are you talking about? Trade desk. I just saw Jeff Green interviewed. He absolutely was spectacular. But this is the kind of multiple to sales stock that I am afraid is going to get hurt by the flood of IPOs. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the lightning round. 
The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. For the longest time, when we thought about the industry of casino gambling, we had only one thing in mind, Macau, which is the greatest gambling story of all time. We had many U.S.-based casinos, and they were okay investments, often depending on how well they did at the gaming tables, or more importantly, how much money they made by lending to gamblers. Oh, they tried their hands at Atlantic City, but it didn't bring in much money for them. Didn't really work. But then in the mid-2000s, Sheldon Adelson, a true visionary, and Steve Wynn, another visionary, opened casinos in the greatest gambling mecca on earth. And that's Macau, the curious adjunct to the People's Republic of China, where the gambling-enamored Chinese could lose fortunes at all sorts of gaming tables. I have rarely seen a more profitable set of years than the times these two casinos expanded in Macau, and I recommended them over and over again and fast enthusiastically on the show, shying away, particularly from the domestic operators, as being dowdy with no growth and often with too much debt. And it worked and worked and worked until one day we got a new president, President Trump, and he decided to take on the government of the People's Republic of China. The result? Well, the greatest gambling story of all time came to a screeching halt. Now, you might say, it doesn't matter. Vegas is booming. They could make it all up there. No, no way, especially not with a pandemic where crowds, what you need more than anything if you're going to make money in the hospitality, particularly the casino business, have been basically outlawed. The result? The stock of Las Vegas Sands, which I used to call Macau Sands because it derived so much of its profit from there, is now down 29% for the year. The stock of Wynn, which had been one of the greatest investments of all time, no longer has Steve Wynn and is now down 42% for the year. That's a staggering loss, but was widely acknowledged. Be by far the best operator in the business. But you know what people didn't count on, particularly the analysts who covered the industry? Two things. One is that the, regi- the, regi- I'm sorry, the regional casinos would continue to be popular and actually do better in the time of COVID than the big dogs. And second, Gambling. No, not casino gambling. Actual wagering on professional sports. Now, I have long believed that gambling could be the way out of a lot of the budget crunches states are having. You know, I feel that same way about cannabis. I also thought that there could be ways to make it more exciting by taking it out of the sober world of predicting winners and losers like they do on regular TV into the actual real gambling world with spreads and overs and unders and big money and, of course, fantasy. Now, It's beginning to happen, and it's happening in a way that is extraordinary. The ironic thing, though, is it didn't happen with Wynn. It didn't happen with MGM. (laughs) Certainly, it it, it didn't happen with Las Vegas. It's happening with an outfit called Penn National Gaming. That's who's capitalizing on it. You see, Penn National's Jay Snowden decided to go all in on gambling of all kinds just when COVID hit at the same time. And he handled the pandemic better than just about any company in the industry. Remarkably well done. Most important, he decided to join forces with an electric outfit, Barstool. That's the multimedia entertainment company run by CEO Erica Narditi that stars David Portnoy among a terrific supporting cast. Now it's on the verge of launching its sports book, and the excitement has driven this stock up 185% as investors realize that Barstool may be the best and most efficient way to bring in wagers, particularly young ones, right into the virtual casino and then to the bottom line of P-E-N-N. 
We caught up with Penn National's Jay Snowden, along with Barstool's Erica Nardini and Dave Portnoy, to find out the prospects on the eve of the sports book. I wanted first to know how Snowden pulled it all off. Here's what he had to say. I think we do a good job. Uh, we know how to operate. Uh, we know how to deliver great service, whether it's in a retail brick and mortar or with these two on our digital products as we roll those out. And this was an opportunity for us to reimagine what we do and how we do it. And we've taken that opportunity, whether you're talking about marketing efforts or procurement, um, non-gaming amenities, what customers really want, hotel products. And um, we feel like there's, there's some real structural change that we can pursue here. This is a transformational opportunity for us right now. And um, I think what you're going to see as time goes is that the margin improvement opportunities are real, uh, something that regional gaming hasn't seen in decades. He's a terrific operator, isn't he? You know what else has been difficult? The process of gambling itself. While I can't gamble, I looked at Penn National's app, and I think it's going to be a winner. Dave Portnoy, who says he will keep his new day job as Davey Day Trader, which many of you I know get a kick out of, explains it this way. You really had to go out of your way in the past to place a bet, whether it's illegally with like a bookmaker, which you shouldn't be doing, offshore casinos, which felt like you were getting your credit card information stolen. So the element that, you know, somebody who maybe was casual can now do it easily, I think will lead to obviously a much bigger market. All right. All that is well and good, but how much money can really be made here? Because that's the trick with the stock, and that's what we care about. The analysts are thinking it could be just maybe a 5 to $6 billion gambling opportunity. But Erica disabused us of that notion. It's an exponential on that. We're going to make gambling cultural. We're going to make it the way we engage with sports, and we're excited to do that. So I, I think there's no limit on it. I would put a T behind that number, not a B. That's T for trillion. Now we're talking about the size of the Treasury markets. She also explained that while Dave Portnoy is Barstool star, for sure, it's a much larger entertainment company itself than people realize. We are now the biggest publisher on TikTok. We're the fourth biggest podcast publisher in the world. We're the sixth biggest distributed media company in the world. So we continue to grow by leaps and bounds because we're making content that's different. Our fans love it, and we, we respond to that. Here's the bottom line. I like this story. I liked it at 30. I liked it at 20. I liked it at 10. I even liked it at 3, 4. I think that gambling is gigantic in this. And DraftKings, another publicly traded company, are really the only games in town, the only way to play it. Therefore, even at a $10 billion valuation, up usually for the year, I think Penn National has terrific prospects. If you believe, as I do, that gambling, legalized sports wagering, will be as big as Macau was 16 years ago when we first arrived. I think the combination of Barstool and Penn, that's a great one, and it will work even higher as the football season progresses and gambling goes virtual almost all over the country. In the end, I think Erica is dead right. This is a colossal business, and the scarcity value here says that if Penn Nat stock comes down, it didn't run up too much today for my, for really, for my taste, then you've got to take advantage of it, and you got to buy. Mad Money's back in for the break. We don't want froth, and we don't want excess supply. At least we've got the safety net of incredibly low interest rates and the possibility of stimulus. But we need the stimulus if you think the market's going to keep going higher because there are many stocks that are too frothy. So take a look at your portfolio. Do what we did at the trust. Maybe trim back some of these high-flying tech stocks 
and wait around. It's okay. I'd like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.